wanted to start off by talking about Fortnite. Yep. Know it well. <laughs> I don't play it, but I know it. <laughs> My boys play it. I just thought it was really interesting that with films being off the cinema at the moment, although I know they're coming back, Fortnite is being used as mm-hmm. a platform to get film new releases in yep. front of a certain audience. So my son told me quite a few months ago now that often an artist will perform or break a new single by performing or having an animated version of themselves performing live at a certain time within the game. And they look really cool, actually. I have seen some of those as well. Yeah. They do look really cool. Absolutely. I was blown away, actually, when he showed me it. And apparently I saw a news article the other day which showed this shot of all these, you know, gamers or, or like avatars in the game, sitting down, watching a film on the big screen, like a drive-in cinema. And Christopher Nolan had basically um, allowed Fortnite to play three of his films. I think it was Dark Knight, Inception, and I can't remember what the other one was. But I just, you know, and then in the same article, they they interviewed a, I can't remember the name of the director, but put put the question, like, how how would directors feel about their work, you know, or their releases? taking advantage of these these kind of virtual worlds i suppose i just thought mm. it was really interesting yeah so i they tend to get invited to an event and i'm not sure however whether you know you're being invited to a music event or whether you're being invited to like a trailer or a, a film for example and i think wherever you are around the world you get it at different times as well because my boys were getting excited that there was this special event on. I was like, oh, right, okay, I'll come have a look, see what it is, because I enjoyed um, one of the DJs that performed as well. And it popped up, and they were like, oh, it's a, it's a trailer. They were hoping it for it to be a music um, performance of you know, some sort. I think it's a great platform to, to show trailers, but I think they should, however, say what the event is going to be. There have been in the Fortnite game movie tickets you can pick up as well, which invites you to an event. But I don't think for that particular event that I joined, there was a movie tickets, but I could be wrong. So that's the only thing. There are children that are underage playing Fortnite. And I think you've got to be really careful, make sure the trailers are for 12-year-olds, really. And really, there's not as much control from the parents' side, I would say, on a child watching these trailers that may be for a 12 year old plus yeah but I, I imagine you would have you would have thought that like you say the trailer will be in line with the certificate of the actual video game yeah it? yeah yeah and, um, and if as a parent if you're letting your child play Fortnite, you're letting them it's a 12 plus game anyway so you they're going to be exposed to these kind of things anyway yeah no, absolutely i just think so, it's nuts that it's even you know that those that that you know Fortnite as a platform or a video game as a platform mm. can potentially become a legitimate place to to release to release mm. a movie. Um, It'd be like premieres, you could do premieres on on through Fortnite. How about that? It's almost like going to cinema, but not on the big screen with all the comfy sofas or t- chairs, as we talked about last week. The only thing is, that I I just think there's going to be some youngsters that are going to be watching these trailers, and it might not be suitable for them. But as you said, they're the parents allowing to play a 12-year-old game anyway. Cool. Okay. Should we crack on then? A few films for this week, Pan's Labyrinth and The Revenant. Where yes. Are we gonna, where are we going to start? Should we go with The Revenant? 
I can't, I can't say it, say it again. The Revenant. I, can, I struggled to say it last week. One of those words uh, that you keep repeating and then suddenly very quickly <laughs> it doesn't sound right. So the Revenant. <laughs> it sounds really odd. Right, I'll start again. It was made in 2015, directed by and screenplay by Alejandro Inarito. And screenplay was by Mark Smith, based on a novel by Michael Punk. It's set in 1820s during the, the fur trade war between France, Britain, Scotland and America. And we follow the legendary um, frontiersman Hugh Glass, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, on a fur trade expedition with uh, a group of huntsmen. Glass has a relationship with a uh, native Indian and they had a son together called Hawk, who is played by Forrest Goodluck. I love that name. It's such a beautiful name. And there is unrest between the Indian natives, the French fur traders, the American traders, and Glass's partner or wife, I don't know whether they were married at all, died during some of this unrest. And Hawk joined on Glass's expeditions as part of that. So his son joined him. During this expedition, Glass gets mauled by a bear and the huntsmen carrying him to their base struggled with the terrain. So the leader of the men, Captain Andrew Henry, played by Domhnall Gleeson, asked three men to stay behind and care for Glass and he paid them $100 extra for that duty. So the first volunteer was Bridger, played by Will Poulter, and then John Fitzgerald, Tom Hardy. Um, they agreed to stay and then also Hawk made the three. So Glass and Fitzgerald, DiCaprio and Hardy were niggling at each other through most of the film. And throughout the whole expedition, he wanted him dead, really. And eventually, a few days later, Bridger and Hawke, while they're caring for him, Fitzgerald decided that was enough and he wanted to move on. And he buried Glass and left him for dead. And he made out to Bridger that the Indian tribe were coming, so they both had to flee and and go to the home base. However, we find later that Glass isn't dead and wants revenge. Really, it's a story about revenge, this whole piece. And the film was on my top film list, really, because of the cinematography is amazing. It must have been a really tough film to shoot as well, as they were trekking through mountainous, uh, snowy conditions, very cold as well. And on interviews, DiCaprio would, one, he would have to eat raw bison liver, and he's a vegetarian. He also had to learn how to shoot muskets, build a fire, speak two Native American languages, Pawnee and Arakara. And he also had to study with a doctor who specializes in ancient healing techniques as well. And this is one of DiCaprio's, he calls it, this is the hardest performance of his career. It's won three Oscars. DiCaprio, uh, best performance by an actor in a leading role, won cinematography, amazing cinematography, and best directing. And Tom Hardy was nominated also for best supporting actor. I love the film. Love to get your thoughts, Rob. Well, I think think twice you talked about how amazing the cinematography was. And that for me, was the biggest takeaway. It just looks stunning. And last week, we were talking about Arrival and that term, dirty sci-fi, that felt like a bleak Tuesday morning on the way to work. Yeah. This is this is also, like, has a real, I don't know, a kind of a really cool, saturated, bleak palette in a way. Everything looks, I don't know how to describe it, everything looks just so windswept. Mm-hmm. These tundra type landscapes. You've got DiCaprio, who's playing this guy who is put through absolute hell. 
and really we're following him from someone who is buried alive to eventually managing to get himself into a state where he can start to try and get back to the fort. You just feel it. You totally feel it. The, the environment, you really feel it. And I just loved it for that. I mean, there was one amazing scene, like aerial scene, where you've got these mountains in the background and you've got this huge, almost like snowy ice plane, which takes up the entire width of the screen. And you're looking down, you just see this dot, DiCaprio kind of journeying through this particular piece of landscape it's jaw dropping it's absolutely amazing yeah the rapids were lovely as well and the rapids yeah exactly yeah. it's it's really hard to explain but it, it totally immerses you in the environment you, you just mm. you can just imagine what that environment almost must kind of feel like so the director Inaritu does a brilliant job in putting that off so for me that was the the biggest thing I loved about this was just you know the way it immersed you in the environment I think DiCaprio puts in definitely a very good performance. I mean, I reckon when this script landed on his table, <laughs> I reckon he read through it and thought, right, okay, more by a bear, tick. <laughs> uh, eating a bison's liver, tick. Sleeping in like a steaming horse's car oh, yeah. overnight, yeah. tick. Falling over a huge set of rapids, tick. You know, all these unbelievable scenes and also he has very little dialogue because for a huge portion of the film he's he's either on his own or he's he's nearly dead so yeah it's very very little dialogue so everything is really it's a very physical performance and everything is 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 really through the through his kind of facial expressions and gestures yeah but you do feel like okay this is DiCaprio you know what? What yeah. more? What more has this guy got to do to get to get an Oscar than what he does here? So I was a little bit aware when I was watching it, thinking it is made for him to get that elusive award. You feel like he's been on an adventure with Bear Grylls, don't you? Really? <laughs> to totally. <be> honest. <laughs> totally. I don't even think Bear Grylls could kind of survive. Yeah. Survive. Yeah. So yes, fair play to DiCaprio. I sometimes have a problem with him in roles where he's in biopic films i mean this this is obviously based on based on hugh glass so so it is based on a real person but when i think Mm. back to films where you know the great gatsby or the aviator i always sometimes found that because he's got quite a baby face Mm. he became such a renowned actor at such an early age that i sometimes find his roles hard to really invest in but I didn't think that was the case with this I mean he's hidden by mm. a massive beard yeah apparently Hugh Glass he didn't have a an Indian native wife or girlfriend and he didn't have a son either so they they've changed that for the film that was the only hokey bit of it for me uh, there were mm-hmm. parts of this at the beginning where you know you have these spiritual scenes where he's seeing his beloved wife or partner beyond the grave and there was a bit of gladiator in that i thought this whole idea of him like yeah. always always being close to death's door and you know it's almost always being drawn towards death whilst having this guardian angel helping him and eventually you know i would have preferred probably just to seen a bit less of that but i suppose you did need to see some kind of human element to him and with his son being pawnee and you know native indian it certainly made the narrative slightly more interesting. Mm. I thought Tom Hardy was great in it. Some criticism 
of some of Tom Hardy's performances is this kind of hunched up mumbling style that he's almost mm-hmm. typecast for. And he has such a deep American accent in this, Midwestern American accent, that at times it's really difficult to understand what he says. But in the same light, he's so convincing in this role. Mm-hmm. And he's a, yeah, he's a nasty character, plays him perfectly. And I like that just, I kind of, I just, I like the inevitability that you know these two characters that DiCaprio and Hardy play. You know, you're kind of gunning for them to face off towards the end of the film. You mentioned William Poulter. So, no, Will, yep. You mentioned Will, Will Poulter. Poulter. I thought he was great. In any scene he was in, I thought he in some ways stole the show. I think he's an amazing actor. I, th- I saw him in a film called Detroit, which he was hugely impressive in as well. And mm-hmm. he's, not in, he's not in the film much, but he has a very, very distinctive face. For me, it was just a massive, massive, immersive experience. It is quite a long film, but it's almost like just being on the shoulder of someone who's journeying back from the dead in the most inhospitable yet beautiful looking environment. And and you just kind of go along for the ride and and feel everything he's feeding. I just want to finish by talking about the bear mauling sequence. Mm. Oh my God. I, I mean, I have seen this film once before and I saw it in the cinema. So I was kind of looking forward to that scene because it was really shocking the first time I saw it. It's just so realistic. And it's one of those scenes you watch where you, well, for me anyway, you genuinely wince. You're like, oh, God. You know, just it, it, it goes on and on and on. And seeing DiCaprio's character, Hugh Glass, literally being thrown around like a rag doll by yeah. this bear. And actually, this brings me to a, a bit of camera work that you see quite a few times during this film where the camera is so close to the subjects or the characters, the breath steams up the lens and you're so close to the bear, the nose of the bear as he's on DiCaprio's back that it misses up the camera. And you see it again at other parts of the film. I really like that because again, it just made you feel like apart from the bear looking incredibly real, it really just immersed you in the story. Yeah, I mean, uh, Glenn Ennis was the the stunt man and or the the person that played the bear. He's six foot four apparently, um, and uh, he wore a blue suit and a blue bear head uh, to give it a bit more realism. But he was interviewed after this film was made and apparently spent most of his time at DiCaprio's bottom around that area and uh, through most of that scene, and it wasn't very pleasant for him. So, uh, so good on him for playing that part. But yeah. They had minimal CG, you know, special effects, I would say, as part of this film. And, and that was probably the main bit where they used the special effects. In Aritu's, um, the director and uh, Lubitsky, uh, who was the cinematographer, wanted to make it look as, as real as possible. So they literally spent 80 days, their 80 day schedule that took place over nine months. And they would only shoot during daylight, basically doing only a couple of hours per day. So making it quite a long, drawn out uh, production, and especially in those cold weather conditions as well. And what happened was they were filming in Canada, but towards the end, the ice started to melt. And they then had to move to South Argentina to finish it off, basically. There's some snow-capped mountains around there. So, yeah, they really looked at the terrain and, and wanted to make it as realistic as possible. But, yeah, I mean, there's also, the you know, the Indian that saved DiCaprio, who was on his own, um, I think his name was Haikook. He apparently was, was a Texan truck driver before he created this film. And uh, he would be transporting oil 
and he, he got this part and I'm hoping he went on to play other roles after this as well but yeah it was very spiritual fact, the film called in 1971 called The Man in the Wilderness is very similar to this film and it's um, starring Richard Harris as Zachary Bass and the man was mauled as well and left for dead very similar to this this film it's basically based on the same story uh, so it's been done before in 1971 but I think this one has been done beautifully it is quite long it's two hours 36 minutes and I did have to watch it in a couple of stages I've sort of stopped and started it budget wise they had actually quite a big budget on this it's 135 million dollars and they made $532 million worldwide gross on this. With China, on the opening weekend, $31 million. So they loved the film, obviously, or really liked DiCaprio and Tom Hardy, etc. Um, so it's a big success in China. So what are you going to give it then, Rob? I think I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. Purely the cinematography, the immersive nature of it, is the whole way it was filmed, and... The number of times you think, God, has this guy got to go through any more <laughs> hell than this? I mean, there's one scene where he manages to steal a horse and it, and it it culminates in in this amazing shot. It basically just rides straight over the edge. Um, <laughs> I know. And, really and the camera, it's almost like... like being, how did she survive that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, and it's like being on one of those point of view roller coaster type shots where you like, yeah. whoa, you know, you feel like you're yeah. full, you feel it comes and it comes yeah. out of nowhere because there's snow yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And I remember watching that thinking, this poor guy, I mean, you know, how's he even surviving all this? Um, so mm. it's, a, it's a tale of survival and maybe less about, you know, the, the characters and the whole setting. Yeah, I'll give it eight out of ten. Is so, it watch um, it if you haven't seen this film, you have to watch it for the bear morning sequence alone. Because uh, it's amazing. It is yeah. amazing. There's very few films that that will grab your attention quite like that. Yeah. I mean, I have I have a bit of a soft spot for Will Poulter. I, I saw him in The Son of Rambo and I thought he was amazing in, in that. I've also seen him in Maze Runner and a couple of other films and I thought he was good in this. And he was the good, He was a good kid in this film as well. He's an older kid, obviously, but he's a good kid in, in this. And kind of felt a bit sorry for him, really. But he kind of has that, you know, sort of poppy dog eyes and he can, he can kind of plays those parts really well. So I, I like Will Poulter. I, I think the performances from Leo DiCaprio was good. He grunted a lot, I have to be honest. But, you know, he's in absolute agony, so don't blame him. And and Hardy as well. He, occasions there was, we couldn't understand what he was saying exactly, as you pointed out. It was a real gritty film and one with nature, and I really like that, the sound, and just it's just beautiful. So I'm actually going to give it 9 out of 10. Oh, so well, first time great. I'm probably going above you there because usually go, you go higher and I go lower. And I really enjoyed looking up some of the factoids, actually. There was loads of factoids around the film. And, and, and actually, Hardy and DiCaprio, although they don't get on in the film as their characters, they are quite close. It was actually DiCaprio that suggested that Hardy plays Fitzgerald in this film because Hardy was looking at Splinter Cell at the time. And DiCaprio turned down Steve Jobs' role to play this character. And apparently Hardy's not one for reading scripts. I don't know why. I don't know how he gets these roles and he does, without reading scripts. I, I have no idea. But he read the first half and he straight away said, yep, yeah, I want to play John Fitzgerald. So it was actually down to DiCaprio. And actually they had a bet because DiCaprio said, 
this is an Oscar winning film. And they had a bet whoever was going to get an Oscar, the loser, had to get a uh, a tattoo done. And I think something it was like Leo, it has something about Leo somewhere on his body. But you have to get a tattoo done as like one of the forfeits, basically. So that, they're that close. So it's, yeah, it was really... And they're playing these horrible, you know, they're not getting on at all during this, this film. And it's great how they can switch it on and switch it off as, as being great actors. So on to Pan's Labyrinth. Okay, mm. so Pan's Labyrinth was released in 2006, written and directed by Guillermo del Toro and cinematography by Guillermo Navarro, who he's collaborated with on many of his films. So it's an original story, quite literally born out of his own imagination and it's a grown-up fairy tale that's how Toro describes this film it's a fairy tale for adults certainly not for children and it's a film that really has these two completely parallel worlds playing out at the same time and I think for me actually sometimes I actually struggle to see the connection between the two we'll come on to that later so the film opens with this fairy tale like setting and um, when you've, you've even got like a over-the-top narrator as a voiceover and it tells the story of this princess whose father is king of this underworld and we learn that one day she visits the human world she's desperate to kind of break free from this uh, place and when she does so she's blinded by the sun and she loses her memory and so crossing into the human world she becomes mortal and eventually she dies but the king believes that one day her spirit will return. So the story goes that he builds these series of labyrinths or portals that would transport her back into his world. So that's how the film opens. We then transition to the main setting of the film, which is 1944 Spain, five years after the Spanish Civil War. So we have this dictatorship under fascist ruler General Franco, and you still have these small kind of communist rebel groups still fighting for the cause. And we're introduced to this young 10-year-old girl, Ophelia, who's played by Ivana Biquero, who travels with her mother, Carmen, played by Ariadne Gill. And they are traveling to this rural village called Navarro, where Karma's new husband, Captain Vidal, played by Sergi Lopez, uh, he's an officer in Franco's army. He's stationed with his men at this old mill. And this guy, Captain Vidal, is a, he's a nasty piece of work. Karma's heavily pregnant with Vidal's child. Uh, Ophelia's father died during the war. And as soon as they arrive, you can see that she immediately bumps up against um, Vidal and refuses to accept Vidal as her new dad, knowing that her brother is going to be born from this relationship between Vidal and her mother. During the journey, whilst traveling through the forest, she comes across this uh, flying insect that is following Ophelia around. And she believes this is a fairy and becomes completely obsessed with it. And the first night of the arrival, it does actually turn into a fairy and leads her to this ancient labyrinth in the grounds of the house. Here she meets a fawn, played by Doug Jones, who believes she is the reincarnation of the princess. And he gives her a book, tells her she'll find in this book three tasks to complete in order to, for her to acquire this immortality and return to her kingdom. Um, her only real friend in the story is Vidal's housekeeper, Mercedes. 
played by Maribel Verdu, who, along with the house doctor, are actually secretly passing on supplies and rations to their communist comrades hiding out in the surrounding forest. So although they're the staff of the Dow, they're actually insurgents helping out the, the other side in this kind of good versus evil real-life war. So the best way to describe it, as I say, is this grown-up fairy tale, which really just sees this young girl find refuge from the horrors of war in her own made-up fairy tale world, which she kind of escapes to. And it's like her mission is to complete the tasks as she slowly starts to believe that she could be the princess. Whilst in the other story, you've got Captain Vidal, whose mission is to ensure the safe birth of his son whilst destroying the threat of the rebel insurgents. So I, there are these kind of themes of good and evil and innocence and obedience. And it's, it's very unique. It's beautifully done. The cinematography is amazing. The way in which these various fantastical creatures in the film are brought to life is, is absolutely stunning. It was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, it lost out to the lives of others in that category, but did, and this isn't surprising, it, it won Oscars for Cinematography, Best Art Direction and, and Best Makeup. Yeah, and in terms of exactly what the actual meaning or you're supposed to draw from this film, I've got to be honest, I found tricky to understand exactly what the message was, if, if indeed there was a, a kind of a concrete message to take away from it. So I'd be really interested to know what you made of this one. That's, that's a good point, actually, because there's kind of two stories, isn't it, really? One with the Spanish Civil War side and the other one with trying to get the, the girl to the labyrinth and back to her father. So um, I had watched this before, but I couldn't actually remember it. And I, I was a bit concerned about that because I wasn't sure whether I'd forgotten it because I wasn't keen on it. I'm not great with foreign films. I've admitted that before. I didn't think I'd watched a foreign film before City of God, and actually I have. And this is all in all in Spanish with got English subtitles. And on that, it was Del Toro that made sure he did the film subtitling and the translation of it all as well, because he's struggled with translators from previous films as well, which I can understand that having translated websites in my job before. So I can understand why he wanted to do that himself and try and get, a, you know, his message across that's the message you, you're probably right I, i'm not 100 percent sure either what the message was either it was more of a sort of fairy tale story almost and del toro is king of fantasy i mean he's he's done um he's acted directed written produced shape of water hellboy Blade to Pacific Rim, and I've mentioned before Troll Hunters and Three Below, which is an animation that he's created as well, which I loved to bits. Watch that with my kids, and he's also done Rise of the Guardians and Puss in Boots, etc. So he's done a lot of animation and all very creative and you know interesting creatures in it yeah, i've looked at what he's developing he's got dr jekyll and mr hyde coming up he's got monster he's got pinocchio with ewan mcgregor and christopher waltz and tilda swinton coming up so he's still continuing that you know creative path really going forward and and, and pinocchio should be released next year now i mentioned already that he wrote the film but the producers wanted this film to be in English and he really fought for it to remain in Spanish. And I think that was the right thing to do because I think it leaves it a bit more mysterious as well if you leave it in its, its own language. If it was in English, I think it wouldn't have that sort of eerie creepiness around it, I think. I don't know, that's, it's just my opinion. And I think it was great that he, he kept it in Spanish. And actually, I watched the first 
snippet of it in Spanish and then realised downloaded the wrong um, uh, film at first and then got the one with the English subtitles. But you, there are two available that you can actually go and watch. I was trying to determine where his influence came from because you can't just magically create something like that, really. There must be some influences. So I was thinking, you know, could it be from the 1986 Labyrinth with David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly? Um, but you can really see a strong sense of fairy tales in this film and other films um, as well. Alice in Wonderland, I think, played into part with this as well. But he really expands, likes to expand on youth and lost innocence around his earlier films with Cronus and The Devil's Backbone. And it also he also brought in the Spanish uh, Civil War as part of The Devil's Backbone as well, as well as this film. People compared his work to, to author Arthur Macken and illustrator Edmund Dulac with his pagan ancient forests and his, these fairy tales that are coming through. As you said, he claims that his ideas are just his own and creativity and imagination. But I also know, I, I saw an interview with Del Toro and he said that his first cinematic film he watched, he was, he was four years old, he went to the cinema and we watched Withering Heights and he apparently fell asleep but then woke up when it was a very tormented moment and I think he kind of brings some of that torment into his films uh, but he also used to watch Universal Monsters on TV in black and white. He used to love creatures from the Black Lagoon. And you see all these come into play with, with his films. So there was one scene in this film that reminded me of the Goonies. Towards the end of the Goonies, there's an area where they, you know, I think that you're supposed to take any gold off the captain's table or treasure from the captain's table when they're on the, the pirate ship. And in this film, they have a... T- table of food with a pale man sat at the end of the table is no eyes he's just this pale skinny man very old looking as well his eyes are on the on on this plate in front of him when he gets disturbed he, he puts his eyes in his hands and he can then holds his hands to his face to, to be able to see and it's quite creepy really and then he chases Ophelia out of this area this sort of maze I would call it Apparently Stephen King saw this screening of this and it made him shudder, apparently. It certainly made me cringe and it was quite a scary part of the film. I wouldn't say the rest of it was scary at all. It was more of an adventure, but sort of creepy kind of adventure. And Doug Jones, you mentioned, played the, the fawn. He also played the pale man as well. And Doug Jones was the only actor in this film that was not Spanish, hadn't spoken Spanish before, and he had to learn his lines very quickly and carefully. But it took him five hours to get into the pale man costume, and then he, he could only see through the nostrils of the pale man. It must have been absolute nightmare. But he's also gone on to play Shape of Water and Hellboy 2 with Del Toro as well. So he's obviously done a great job with what he did with Pan's Labyrinth. Couldn't decide... Also, this film, whether the fawn was was friendly or whether, you know, was he trying to trick Ophelia into going to the labyrinth? I think it's um, it must be deliberate. You're never quite sure how trustworthy the fawn is. And also the character of Mercedes, when Ophelia says to Mercedes, oh, you know, I saw a fawn. I've just been talking to a fawn. And um, obviously Mercedes dismisses it she kind of quips my mother taught me never to trust a fawn and I remember when I heard that I thought oh okay that line's been put in there to almost emphasize should we trust this fawn or not so I think that's kind of quite deliberate because at one point the fawn is very friendly when 
And this is this whole theme of kind of obedience. We see these various scenes where Ophelia is tested mm. and she's told, whatever you do, don't do this. Or, and, and there's various scenes where she's, she kind of gives into it. And when she does that, that's when you get the opposite side of the fawn, the, the wrath of the fawn. Yeah, that's because she wasn't doing as she was told. It's almost like yeah. it was like a father figure in some respects, telling her off, like, no, you need to do this. It, I mean, she was pretty brave, really. I wouldn't have gone into the middle of a tree covered in insects and covered in mud. I totally agree. In a strange way, I think it's almost very autobiographical because mm. we do know that Guillermo was obsessed with fairy tales when he grew up. Apparently, the character of the fawn came about because Guillermo tells this story of waking up in the middle of the night as a child, and from behind the wardrobe is this fawn, like literally almost Ooh. like a kind of a nightmare. Although he doesn't, this mm. is the thing about Guillermo del Toro, he doesn't talk about it as if it's a nightmare. But yeah, so, so that character, the fawn, has come straight out of effectively something he thinks he saw um but you're right when i was watching this i thinking what is this girl doing you know i wouldn't go in there or i wouldn't do that or i mean i would be absolutely scared stiff but she's not so i almost wonder whether she's in some ways an embodiment of del toro who, who just loves this world apparently he always keeps a, a sketchbook with, with all of these very very detailed drawings anything he thinks of he notes down in this pad all the way down to how he would visualize the characters. And so it's an incredible document or record of the mind of Del Toro. And, and you can what you know go onto YouTube and in one interview, he's actually got the book and he talks through how he came to depict the pale man. You know, he talks about Hansel and Gretel and he talks about Alice mm. in Wonderland. So a lot of it comes from well-known fairy tales but the fairy it, tales are creepy though aren't they yeah they're, they're absolutely all creepy, creepy and he's picked that up which makes his imagination maybe a bit more creative and different i suppose but how often is it that you know we've experienced this i'm sure when you have children and sometimes when you read fairy tales now years mm. on they're seriously dark and so i do think it's it's a really interesting area to work in because placing a child in the heart of some of these traditional fairy tales is is almost quite horrific to watch yeah you know another another thing he's trying to play with here is this idea of the loss of innocence or you know children mm. having to learn quite harsh lessons by making sense of the real world through quite disturbing things that are happening in their imaginary world and interesting quite often you get an evil stepmother don't you in in fairy tales whereas you had an evil stepfather in this one where he was tormenting people and and not caring husband he didn't he, he only wanted a child of his own i was mean to ophelia and yeah for a slightly different almost like a role reversal in some respects so yeah uh, and he and it's worth it is worth um a word on uh, the character of of captain vidal i mean he's talk about just a movie villain he's a nasty piece of work mm. actually i should say this as well I do not remember this film having so many scenes like of torture. You know, the things that Vidal does to people, it's really quite disturbing. You know, I suppose in the same way you're seeing quite disturbing things in this imaginary or maybe not so imaginary fairy tale world, you, you see similar kind of atrocities obviously going, going on in the real world. I did hear it talked about that, you know, this whole idea of, theme of trusting personal feelings over authority 
in the same way you've got Ophelia often making her own decisions that will often go against maybe what the fawn is telling her to do. She mm. makes her own decisions, whether right or wrong, she chooses to do that. And although she, you know, there are lots of bumps along the way, you could argue that leads her to the place she wants to get to. And in the other world, you have the housemaid Mercedes similar thing in her kind of subversive behavior. She she is the housemaid, but she's also disobeying by helping her comrades hiding out in Mm. the forest. Mm. And again, by doing that, it does eventually lead to a good place. So I did hear that there were those two kind of themes talked about. But um, yeah, I think on the whole, it does really feel like two parallel stories playing out at the same time. Yeah, but I don't think they could have been played out individually i don't think it would have been interesting enough i think it, it was good that they weave the two together i was actually quite surprised i because at the start i kind of put it off put watching the film because i wasn't sure about it but it was i can't really fault it to be honest it's it was very twisted it very creative i love the nature the sounds of the little droplets or whatever there were certain noises you could hear that made you feel that you're in the forest i love that and I've been toying, really, what, what score to give it, to be honest, because I really wasn't sure about it at the start. But the cinematography and the writing, etc., is really good. So for my rating, I'm going to give it eight and a half out of ten. I thought it was well done. It's not 100% my cup of tea, but actually it surprised me. I'm going to give it eight and a half as well. Cool. I thought it might be higher... I must admit, when I watched it the second time round, it didn't quite have the same impact. It might well be because I just had these expectations of what I Mm. thought I saw before. I wanted to see the two stories maybe mesh a little bit more. And I never thought I'd say this. But I feel like I need to watch it a third time. Oh, really? Straight away? Well, I think there's lots of unanswered questions. It's very open-ended. But it's such, it is such a unique film, isn't it? You're not really going to see anything quite like this. And Del Toro mm-hmm. is, like you say, he's just the king of fantasy emerging yeah. between two worlds. So yeah. it's never really going to lose its appeal. Mm, and eight and a half on both sides, very good score as well. Yeah, absolutely. I quite enjoyed this week because I, I quite enjoyed both factoids that I was looking up on IMDb and looking around where, you know, inspiration came from and, and things like that. So I thought they were really good films to watch this week. So it's time, isn't it? It is time. For reviews for next week. So what are they going to be? The genre is crime. Crime. Okay. I have 11 crimes. I will go for your 11th and final crime. Ooh, that is Molly's Game, 2017 with Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba and Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, the Kev, the Costner's in it. I've never seen Molly's Game, but I do really like Jessica Chastain. And I didn't realise this is Aaron Sorkin, isn't it? So this is cool. While Sarah finds out where this is on view, this is the true story of Molly Bloom an Olympic-class skier who ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game and who became an FBI target. Well, that's a hell of a description of a film. Yeah, it's very twisted, isn't it, already? So you can rent or buy from Amazon Prime, Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, Rakuten TV, Sky Store, etc., etc., most online channels. Lovely. Right. Give me a genre, then. It is horror and thriller. Oh, dear. 
Okay. Um, Not too I, scary, please. I don't know why I'm laughing, because <laughs> there are some on here that I hope you pick. <laughs> it's because some are more scary than others. Oh, no. Okay, I have 17 on, on the list. I'm going to go for number 10. The Silence of the Lambs. Oh, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure... Chianti. Exactly, bring your bottle of Chianti. Uh, <laughs> and this is on Netflix, Happy Days. You can stream the film there. It is also available to rent on Google Play, Apple, YouTube, and Rakuten TV. What a throwback this film is. I've only seen this film once, and that was when it was in the cinema. So this is about a young FBI cadet who must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, uh, a madman who skins his victims. And, of course, this is Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, both in very memorable performances. Yeah, classic. Great. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great week. Carry on listening, everyone. And we will speak again in seven days' time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.